The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Revolving around the life of the inventor of the atom bomb, Christopher Nolan's new film Oppenheimer looks set to be one of the biggest movies of the year. Released in UK cinemas today, the film is inspired by a 2005 book co-authored by the late Martin Sherwin and the guest for today's episode, Kai Bird. Martin and Kai's book, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, won a Pulitzer Prize for its exploration of the paradoxes and complexities of the physicist's life, achievements and legacy. Kai joined Eleanor Evans to talk about the man who inspired the book and the film and to give a historian's take on the blockbuster movie. Kai, thanks so much for joining me. And I wanted to start by asking, what brought you to write about Oppenheimer in the early 2000s with Martin Sherwin? Well, thank you, Eleanor, for having me. That's an interesting story. I was, uh, I'm a working biographer. And by 1998, I had published my second biography. And I was unemployed. (laughs) And and, uh, sort of casting about for a, a new project. And Marty Sherwin and I had become friends, oh, in the 1980s. And uh, I knew he was working on Oppenheimer. He had signed the contract to start working on a biography of Robert Oppenheimer in 1980. And finally, in 1999, he came to me and... uh, He was a funny guy. I really loved him. He had a great sense of humor. And he came to me and he said, 
Kai, uh, I'd like you to join me on my Oppenheimer project. And if you don't, my gravestone is going to read, he took it with him. <laughs> so, so by 2000, we had joined forces and renegotiated a contract with Knopf. And it still took us five years for the writing and for the publication of the book in 2005. So you spent a long time with Oppenheimer, and many will know Oppenheimer as the so-called father of the atomic bomb, and perhaps that alone, so perhaps we can start there. I wonder if you could give our listeners a sense of his work on the Manhattan Project, his appointment at Los Alamos Laboratory. What sort of work was he doing? How was he managing things? How was he regarded? Yeah, you know, he was recruited to become the scientific director of the Los Alamos secret laboratory in the desert of... New Mexico in 1942. And he was then just a 38-year-old theoretical physicist who had managed nothing more than a few graduate students at Berkeley, the University of California. But he was a brilliant young quantum physicist, and there was something deeply charismatic about him and mysterious. And General Groves, Leslie Groves, the general in charge of the Manhattan Project, saw something when he met Oppenheimer, saw something in this young man that made him convinced that he was the right choice. Anyway, it's a miracle. Everyone we interviewed about his years in Los Alamos always mentioned that, you know, the the atomic bomb would never have been produced in two and a half years if they had chosen anyone other than Oppenheimer. He was just, uh, it turned out he was a brilliant administrator and was very persuasive at getting all these large ego-minded scientists to work together. And uh, in July of 1945, they tested the so-called gadget in the desert of New Mexico at the Trinity test site, and it worked. Well, before we go into that Trinity test, I wonder if I can pick up on that mystery that you've just alluded to, because a lot of people will know of Oppenheimer as the the genius physicist. But I think something that people might not be as familiar with is the human element of his story, his character. Can you give us a bit more sense of that? What was he like as a man? Well, he was very complicated. You know, part of his brilliance as a scientist was precisely the fact that he was a polymath. You know, he loved quantum physics but he also loved the deserts of New Mexico. He'd first gone to New Mexico when he was a 18-year-old teenager, and he fell in love with horseback riding and the very Spartan cowboy existence out there. But Oppenheimer was also someone who loved French poetry and the novels of Ernest Hemingway, and he acquired an interest in Hindu mysticism, and started reading the Hindu scriptures, the Gita, and taught himself Sanskrit so that he could read it in the original. Uh, so, you know, he, he was a multifaceted intellectual, and this was precisely part of his appeal. Unlike other theoretical physicists who could be quite nerdy-minded, uh, Oppenheimer could speak in plain English and, and explain things. He had just a, a brilliant ability to explain things in plain English. And he was a somewhat charismatic speaker, although oddly shy and reticent, 
very complicated. I mean, he, you know, he could be sweet and patient with his students. And then in the presence of authority figures, he could suddenly become brusque and even rude. And of course, this was part of his downfall later on. Well, it's so intriguing to think of um, this man against the backdrop of such a a dramatic period in history, and and that's wonderful context to have. I wonder if we can also pick up on his political leanings as well, as that definitely plays a part later on, doesn't it? Sure. You know, he was born in New York City, grew up in the city. He was of Jewish ancestry, but uh, raised in the Ethical Culture Society, which was sort of an offshoot of Reformed Judaism. And uh, as a young man in the 1920s, he was rather apolitical. He was focused on learning quantum physics. But in the the early 1930s, he met Jean Tatlock, a young woman who was studying to become a psychiatrist. And she was actually a member of the Communist Party and very politically engaged. And she, uh, when she met Oppie, as his students called him, uh, she railed against him saying, you know, Robert, you need to become more politically engaged. You know, this is the midst of the 1930s depression and capitalism seemed to not be working. So with her encouragement, uh, Oppenheimer began to become politically involved. And there's a mystery about whether he actually joined the Communist Party or not. Marty Sherwin and I concluded that he did not join the party, but he did contribute to Communist Party activities, an effort to desegregate a public swimming pool in Berkeley. He contributed to a fund to buy an ambulance to ship it to the Spanish Republic in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. His younger brother, Frank, actually did join the Communist Party. And in 1940, Oppie met Kitty Pruning, a young woman who had also joined the Communist Party. And by that time, she had left the Communist Party. But Oppenheimer had all these associations and friendships. And of course, this was going to haunt him with American political authorities and the FBI. He fell under FBI surveillance as early as 1940. By 1954, his FBI file had uh, grown to be about 8,000 pages. <laughs> so. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Wow, a very significant record. And um, I know we'll get 
onto that a little bit more in a while. But if, if we can return to the Trinity test then with the knowledge now of those influences of that background, could you give us a sense of in the lead up to this test, how much is known about the feelings that Oppenheimer was grappling with this tremendous responsibility? Yes, he was driven to succeed. He was very ambitious. He was anti-fascist in his political leanings. This was his major motivation for building this gadget. When he was approached in 1942 by General Leslie Groves, he wanted to join. He wanted to work on this. He knew that from the physics that it was possible. It was simply a large engineering problem. And he feared that the uh, German physicists whom he had studied with in Germany in the 1920s were, you know, as perfectly capable as he was of building this weapon. And he feared that they would give it to Hitler and that Hitler would win the war as a result. And he feared that the German bomb project was probably 18 months ahead. Um, so he was very fearful that they were too far behind. And this gave him the motivation to work hard and to inspire others, other physicists and scientists at Los Alamos to build the gadget. But of course, by... 1945, by the spring of 45, Germany was defeated. So a discussion broke out in among the scientists at Los Alamos. Why are we working so hard? Uh, we know that it's very doubtful that the Japanese, who were still fighting in the Pacific War, uh, had a bomb project at all. So why are we doing this? We know the war in Europe is over. And Oppenheimer came up with, at the crucial meeting, he, as he usually did, he stood at the back of the meeting and listened and allowed people to express their viewpoints. And then at just exactly the right moment, he stepped forth and reminded everyone that Niels Bohr, the famous Danish physicist, had arrived at Los Alamos on the last day of 1943, and he had one question for Oppenheimer. He said, Robert, can you tell me whether it is big enough? And what he meant, of course, was whether the gadget was so terrible and would ignite with such explosive power that it would persuade all of humanity that we could never again fight total warfare like World War II, and that it would end war as we know it. And so Oppenheimer was making the argument, and he convinced himself that the gadget could not be uninvented, and that therefore it had to be demonstrated, the power of it, of it had to be demonstrated in this war, because otherwise humanity being humanity wouldn't understand the nature of the weapon, and the next war would be fought by adversaries who were both armed with nuclear weapons, and that would lead to Armageddon. So this was, you know, a powerful, persuasive argument. Um, only one physicist quit Los Alamos at, in the spring of 1945, Joseph Rotblat. But the others remained and worked hard. And uh, so on July 16th, 1945, they exploded the first atomic bomb at the Trinity site. And what can you tell us about Oppenheimer's immediate reaction and how does that change between then and the, the August deployment as well? Well, 
At the moment of the explosion, from all accounts, he turned to his younger brother, Frank, and simply said, it worked. (laughs) And then a few days later, he was interviewed by a New York Times reporter who had been assigned to begin to gather the reporting and to reveal what had been created once the weapon was used. And in that interview, the reporter asked Oppenheimer what thoughts went through his mind when he saw the explosion. And it was at that moment that Oppie referred to the Gita, the Hindu scriptures, and quoted the famous line, I am death, destroyer of worlds. So he had a very theatrical sense to him, too. He knew how to get up on the stage and and perform. But when the Trinity test actually exploded, he simply turned to Frank and said it worked. Now, what's interesting about your question is that in the three weeks between the Trinity test and the use of the bomb on Japan, at one point he was walking to work with his secretary, Ann Wilson, And I interviewed Anne, and she told me that one day, soon after the Trinity test, they were walking to work together, and suddenly Oppenheimer started muttering under his breath, those poor little people, those poor little people. And she stopped him and said, Robert, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the Trinity test shows that the gadget has worked. And now it's going to be used on a large target in Japan, meaning a city, and there are going to be innocents, thousands of innocents killed, those poor little people. So, you know, he was painfully aware of the tragic implications of the gadget. And yet what's interesting, we know Marty pointed out to me when I told him this story from Ann Wilson, he says, well, you know, Chronologically, that's the same week that he was briefing some of the bombardiers who were going to be on the airplane that was going to drop the bomb, and he instructed them exactly at what altitude they should detonate the weapon to have the most maximum destructive power, and that it should be dropped on the center of the city to have the most destructive implications. Yeah, to cause the most destruction. I think that's such a stark example of the paradoxes that um, the, the conflict that must have been going on, on in his mind and in plenty of the other scientists' minds as well. In the immediate aftermath of the atomic bombs being dropped, obviously causing immense devastation, how does Oppenheimer react? What What is his attitude then? And, and I'd like to perhaps zero in a little on his conversations with President Truman, if we can. Immediately after Trinity... Oppenheimer felt first elation, you know, that the gadget had worked, that he had spent two and a half years working on. And then when the news from Hiroshima and Nagasaki broke of what had actually, how the weapon had been used, according to Kitty Oppenheimer, his wife, and her letters to friends, he plunged into a deep depression. She feared for his life. I mean, he was in that black of a mood. He recovered, and then he came to Washington and got briefings about how the war had finally ended. And within uh, soon that October, he had a meeting with President Truman in the Oval Office. And by that time, 
Oppenheimer was determined to try to persuade the president and the policymakers that they needed to understand that this is a weapon that cannot be used defensively and that we shouldn't rely on it and that we should try to find some way to impose international regulations and maybe ban it and control the technology. So here is his one opportunity to explain to Harry Truman his views about how to how we should control this new technology. And he's in the Oval Office and he starts to make his pitch. And Truman suddenly interrupts him and says, well, Dr. Oppenheimer, tell me, when do you think the Russians are going to get this atomic weapon? And Oppenheimer is, he hesitates and he says, well, Mr. President, I'm not sure, but a, a few years. And Truman interrupts again and says, no, I know. The Russians will never get it. And at that moment, Oppenheimer understands that the president of the United States does not understand that there are no secrets to this weapon. The physics is known. And in his frustration, he turns to Truman and he says, well, sir, you don't understand. Either we have blood on our hands or I have blood on my hands. And, you know, this is exactly the wrong thing to tell Harry Truman, the man who made the decision to authorize two weapons to be dropped on two Japanese cities. And the meeting abruptly ends and Truman turns to one of his aides and says, I don't want to ever see that crybaby scientist ever again. Well, you know, Truman didn't understand. And Oppenheimer goes on to, just a few weeks later, he gives a, a speech in Philadelphia. And here, the father of the atomic bomb as such is heard saying about the weapon that he designed and invented, that this is a weapon for aggressors. It's a weapon of terror. And it was first used on an already virtually defeated enemy. And if you think it was expensive, it's actually cheap. And any nation anywhere, however poor, that decides that they want to build this weapon can do so. He's suddenly, you know, just three months after Hiroshima, he has flipped and he is trying to persuade people that this is a danger to humanity and that we have to think about ways to contain it. Um, it's an extraordinary effort on his behalf and an extraordinary story. It is. And not to take away any of that bravery or that importance of him making such statements, but could we get a sense of how unique is his position in the scientific community of those who are working in Los Alamos with him? Is he sticking his head up above the parapet alone? Are there other people feeling similar things in the aftermath of, of the weapon being detonated? No, his fellow scientists at Los Alamos were equally ambivalent. You know, there was initially a wave of elation that they had succeeded. And at the same time, some of them became, Robert Wilson, a young physicist, became violently ill and vomited after the victory party. He was seen vomiting into the bushes after the victory party. He was so upset by the news of Hiroshima. And most of these scientists that, who had participated in the bomb project left. And like Oppenheimer, 
who never worked on weapons again. They went back to their universities and uh, refused to work on nuclear weapons again. But there were others like Edward Teller who continued to believe in this technology. And indeed, Teller became a big advocate of building even bigger weapons, the hydrogen super weapon. So there was already in the fall of 1945 a, a strong division of opinion in the scientific world about what to do with what are the implications of this new technology. And as you've alluded to, this division is also supported by ego, by that posturing in that scientific community, which really makes for a fascinating and pretty devastating mix. Absolutely. You know, Edward Teller and these other scientists are men with large egos. And uh, it's a very human story. Teller and Oppenheimer were friends at Los Alamos, but then nine years later, in 1954, Teller actually comes and testifies against Oppenheimer, urging that his security clearance should be stripped from him because of his suspicious advice on the issue of the super. He was opposed to what Ed Teller was doing. So th this, is, this is a Shakespearean story in many ways. It's a story of men with large intelligence and large egos and strong disagreements. If I can sort of change our tack slightly just to talk a little about Oppenheimer's antagonists at this stage. I wonder if we can pick up on Lewis Straws before we go any further with, with Oppenheimer's um, story. Yes, well, I mentioned earlier that Oppie had a tendency sometimes to be rude and abrupt with people that he thought were arrogant or in positions of authority. And uh, Louis Strauss was one of them. They met in 1947 when Strauss, as chairman of the board of trustees of the Institute for Advanced Study, recruited Oppenheimer to be the new director. And, you know, it was a great position, and Oppenheimer would be there for the next 20 years. In that capacity, he was Einstein's boss, because Einstein was a fellow at the Institute. And yet the, these two men were like oil and water. They, uh, they had bad chemistry. Straws tried to present himself, although he only had a high school education. He prided himself on his knowledge of science and things atomic. And of course, Oppenheimer was rather dismissive of these pretensions. And he made it clear that what, what he thought of Straws. And uh, famously in... I think 1949, he testified at the Senate in the presence of Louis Strauss and made fun of something that Strauss had just testified to, uh, disparaging his scientific knowledge. And so Strauss acquired a deep sort of animosity for Oppenheimer. And in 1953, he was appointed, Strauss was appointed by Eisenhower as chairman of the Atomic Energy Authority, and in that capacity, he had access to Oppenheimer's FBI file, and he realized that Oppenheimer was coming out publicly against the development of the super bomb, the hydrogen bomb. He had opposed that, and he was arguing that we should not be building more weapons. We should be trying to get to nuclear disarmament and regulate this terrible weapon, and 
Straw's got it into his head, looking at the FBI files, that uh, perhaps Oppenheimer was a, a security risk. So he orchestrated a complicated series of charges against Oppenheimer and uh, announced that Oppenheimer either had to go through a security hearing and defend himself or give up his security clearance altogether. And Oppie chose to fight it, and rather naively because he didn't realize what he was walking into. But uh, So in the spring of 1954, Straws orchestrated this security hearing that went on for weeks, and uh, it eventually determined to strip Oppenheimer of his security clearance. And then Straws made sure that the entire transcript of the hearing was leaked to the New York Times and other papers. And it was a public humiliation of America's greatest working scientist. And Oppie never really recovered from it. He, was, he became a public non-entity for the rest of his life, really. It is, as you allude to in the title, it's a tragedy. And I wonder if we can dig into it a little bit more, because as you say, he didn't have to go through this. Can you talk a little more about those motivations and what happened during that Security Council hearing? Well, I like to tell the story of uh, how Oppenheimer, just before the hearing started in April of 54, he walked down the hallway to see Albert, his friend Einstein, and explained to Einstein that uh, he was going to be absent in Washington for several weeks because he was being forced to go through this security hearing to defend his loyalty to the country. And Einstein listened to this and said, Robert, uh, walk away. You, you don't need to do this. You're Mr. Atomic. If they don't need you, you don't need them, and you should walk away from this. Don't have anything to do with this witch hunt. And uh, Oppenheimer gently argued back, trying to explain to Einstein that he felt that he really needed to use his status, his celebrity status as a scientist, to inform the public and the politicians in Washington about the dangers of nuclear weapons. He wanted to use his expertise for the public good and participate in the policy debates. And to do so, he needed his security clearance, and uh, otherwise he wouldn't be able to brief the president. And, and, you know, he was also, the truth be known, Oppenheimer by this time was, you know, had fallen in love with the status that he had and his access to the establishment and to power and to be able to walk the halls of Congress and talk to congressmen and senators and and the president. You know, there was something attractive about all this that he didn't want to give up. Uh, and in this, he was certainly politically naive. Uh, anyway, he, he argued with Einstein and left for Washington. And as he walked out, Einstein turned to his secretary and said, there goes Anar the Yiddish word for a fool. <laughs> and of course, Einstein was uh, a friend of Oppie. He admired him, but he was right. Uh, he was being rather foolish. And he walked into this, this hearing room in Washington and subjected himself to an interrogation where the prosecutor as such had access to all of these 
classified FBI documents. And Oppenheimer's own personal lawyer, who was president in the room, was denied a security clearance and therefore could not see what was being selectively used against Oppenheimer. And they, you know, they brought out all sorts of embarrassing personal details, his love life and his political associations in the 1930s. And, you know, they just tarred and feathered him. It was rigged from the beginning. He had no chance of really succeeding. And, uh, yeah, it was a terrible black mark on American history, and Oppenheimer became essentially the sort of chief celebrity victim of the entire McCarthy era. And uh, this is a relevant story to what we're going through today, because, you know, America every once in a while goes through a period of hysteria and paranoia. And in recent years, we've gone through with, in the Trump era, the same kind of sort of anti-intellectualism that prevailed at the height of the McCarthy era. And so it's a very timely, relevant story about what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954. Indeed. And there is a twist, isn't there? Because there was a development last year, late last year, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, uh, which I believe you were working towards. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that development? It's astonishing. You know, governments rarely apologize for their mistakes, historically. But when Marty and I finally published our book after 25 years of research and being obsessed with this fascinating individual, soon after that the book came out in 2005, we began thinking about, well, is there something that we could do to persuade the government to apologize or revoke the 1954 decision. And uh, we started writing memos and appealing to President Obama in the first instance and then various senators and congressmen. And finally, we succeeded. It's a miracle. But in December of last year, President Biden's Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, Uh, issued an executive order nullifying the 1954 decision on the basis that it had violated their own procedures for conducting such a security hearing. And uh, it doesn't restore his security clearance. You know, Oppenheimer's dead. You can't do that. But it adds a final chapter to the history books. And Young readers reading about what happened to Oppenheimer will now know that uh, finally the authorities in Washington decided that, officially speaking, what happened to him in 1954 should not have happened, and they revoked the decision. A a remarkable final chapter in his story, for sure. Uh, And obviously, there are many listeners and viewers who will be introduced to his story again this summer with the film. Uh, And potentially, I think we'll leave our listeners to discover Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer and Christopher Nolan's interpretation at their own pace. But I believe you said that it's going to be regarded as, quote, unusually historically accurate for a Hollywood feature film. I wanted to ask what you mean by that. Yeah, no, I've seen the film and... You know, it's it's a great cinematic experience. It's a powerful visual piece, artistic achievement. But as an historian, you know, Hollywood sometimes takes liberties with its uh, stories. But Christopher Nolan has achieved something really quite extraordinary. This is a very historically accurate 
account. It's based on American Prometheus. I recognize lines right out of the book. And I see no, no errors to speak of. So it's an extraordinary achievement. And I think it, I'm hopeful that it will provide an occasion for a sort of global conversation about the history of the end of World War II, the use of the atomic bomb, the dawn of the atomic age, but also McCarthyism, and also a discussion about the role of scientists in the 21st century as public intellectuals, where, you know, we're, we live in at a time where we're drenched in technology and science, and yet, oddly enough, scientists uh, sometimes are suspected of not giving good advice when People don't understand that the scientific process is one of trial and error and experiment. And we saw this during the recent pandemic where public health officials were questioned or distrusted for their advice. And I think some of that is due to what happened in America, due to what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954, where America's best-known scientist was publicly humiliated. That was Kai Bird, co-author of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. The film Oppenheimer is released in UK cinemas today. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>